to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I am here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. We actually have quite a lot to talk about today. You know, mm-hmm. normally we have four guests and we, we divide them up between longer and shorter uh, uh, segments. We have five guests today because our bureau chief, uh, Mindy Agavashelli, is in Bali to cover the G20 summit. We're going to be speaking with him in just a few minutes. So I wanted to give you a quick overview of what we're going to talk about today. Um, we've got uh, we've got some terrific guests, as as we always do, including, I'm going to find them now. Here's KJ my no. program schedule. We have KJ <laughs> No to talk about China, yep. the, the meeting today between President Biden and Chinese uh, leader uh, Xi Jinping, which is a, a very big deal. Apparently, it lasted for three and a half hours. I saw the same video everybody saw, and it seemed to be warm. Uh, it also seemed to be substantive. So we have that to look forward to. Um, we also have uh, uh, Paul Wright. Uh, or after KJ No, we have uh, Jim Cavanaugh. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about politics. <laughs> We've I'm got a lot of infighting to talk to about. Yep. Uh, Paul Wright is going to talk to us about uh, some of this uh, these referendums that passed, four of the five referendums on uh banning slavery and involuntary servitude. We're talking about that in the 21st century. And then we have Mohammed Al-Mazi, who's going to wrap up the show for us, in addition to Mindia, who's going to report to us from, from Bali. But there was something that I wanted to uh, raise that, uh, that was very disturbing. Michelle, there was a terrorist attack yesterday in central Istanbul on the busiest shopping street in the city, one that's very popular with tourists. Six people were killed, and at least 81 people were wounded. It was a bomb. Turkish police said yesterday that they had video of a woman sitting on a bench at a bus stop. Uh, She allowed several buses to pass by. She was just sitting there, not actually waiting for the bus. Um, Finally, she got up and walked away, and then just seconds later, the bomb went off right there where she had been sitting. Uh, she was located and arrested this morning along with 47 other people. The, the Turks tend to do this. They'll just arrest dozens or hundreds of people after and the, sort it out later. Yeah. After yeah. that coup, they arrested yeah. thousands of people. Thousands, yeah. many of whom are still in prison. Turkish authorities said that this woman is a Syrian national and that she carried out the bombing on behalf of the Kurdistan Workers Party or PKK. That didn't make any sense to me. When I first heard this, the PKK immediately denied involvement and they said correctly that they have never targeted civilians, which is true. They have never put a bomb in a public place. Now, we the United States considers the PKK to be a terrorist group and certainly they'll, you know, slip onto Turkish military bases in the middle of the night and cut everybody's throat or blow up buses that are carrying Turkish policemen or Turkish soldiers. But they've never, ever planted a bomb in a public place to kill civilians and tourists. Never. Uh, Western eyes are looking at ISIS or the Islamic State. Now, they haven't said anything. And half the time, they don't claim responsibility for their actions. Um, The Turkish government hasn't offered up any evidence that this woman was actually involved. They haven't offered up any evidence that the PKK was involved. Uh, So we're going to wait and see what happens there. Now, here's the interesting twist to the story. Condolences, as you would expect, have poured in from all over the world. The Mm -hmm. U.S., all the countries of the European Union, Russia, Ukraine, China, India, everybody's offering up condolences. 
A few hours after the attack, however, Turkey's interior minister released a statement. He released it formally from the ministry, and he tweeted it, saying, listen to this quote, We reject the U.S. government's condolences. It is like when the killer is the first to come back to the scene of the crime. We see insincerity from some of our so-called allies who either give shelter to terrorists or let them exist on territories they occupy or officially send them money from their senates. But this would seem to be... It seems like he's pulling together everyone, right? Yeah, Sweden, uh, uh, Finland, Greece... Uh, what's his face in Pittsburgh? Uh, uh, Gulen, Fatullah Gulen. Yeah. Who is not associated with the PKK. No, he's not associated with anybody. So it's like, well, who is it? You know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, I, of course, you know, I expected when he when he sort of pointed at the, uh, the allies, I yeah. thought, okay, they've been trying to get Sweden to deport um, right. people. It says are members Kurdish of the PKK. Dissidents. Right. Yeah, dissidents. Uh, ever since they sort of agreed, you know, they made that a condition of, of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Right. So that's... The way I expected the winds to blow, Agreed. but then they drag in Glenn, <laughs> yeah, and, Glenn who has and explicitly to do reject with it. condolences from the United States. And you're like, well, what is this about? Is this about you know the U.S. being you know basically the the director of NATO? But it, it's a couple different things. Uh, first of all, the U.S. was going to sell Turkey F-35s. Uh, we withdrew the offer to sell F-35s, but then we sold the F-35s to Greece. So the Turks said, well, okay, give us F-16s. And we hemmed and hawed. We said, okay, we'll send you the F-16s. But two weeks ago, Congress passed an amendment saying that the Turks can have the F-16s only if they promise in writing not to use them to attack Greece. That's thanks to Representative Chris Pappas of the 1st District of New Hampshire. Very interesting. And the Turks are like, you can't tell us what we can do with the F-16s. And then we said, okay, then you don't get any F-16s. In the meantime, also last week, the Supreme Court allowed a, a suit to go forward. You might remember about two years ago, um, Erdogan visited the United States and outside the Turkish embassy, Erdogan's personal security yes. guys got into a, a scrap with Secret Service and some Turkish dissidents and they beat the daylights out of some of these guys. Yeah. And so th- these victims have filed a suit against the Turkish government for having been beaten up by them. And the Turks said, you can't do that. We're a sovereign nation. You can't sue us. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, actually, yeah, they can. They can sue you. So the Turks are pretty angry with us right now. Yeah. That's what this comes down to. It will be. I mean, we'll see. We'll see if ISIS takes credit or who takes yeah. credit or who gets the blame. It'll be interesting to watch. Uh, let's talk about Bali uh, in no yes. small part because it's I'm very late surprised. there. <laughs> I don't want to so make far. I don't want to make our our correspondent there stay up too late. Joe Biden is in Bali for the G20 summit that is going to start tomorrow. Uh, The G20, of course, brings together 19 developed nations and the EU. And as one of those nations is China, Washington and Beijing took the opportunity to set up the first face-to-face meeting between Mm -hmm. Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden since Biden took office, right? The two, of course, have known each other in previous roles for, for a very long time. This meeting comes as the U.S.-China relationship is very tense, mm-hmm. and uh, you know some of the discussion was anticipated to set a floor for the countries to uh, hopefully not sink below and start to build up from. And so we are going to talk now about what we know of that meeting and uh, some comments made afterward by U.S. President Joe Biden. We're joined now by Sputnik Washington Bureau Chief Mindy Gavashelli, who's in Bali. Mindy, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
So uh, the tone of this first face-to-face meeting was at least very different from uh, the first face-to-face meeting that Antony Blinken had with his counterparts, which was actively hostile. Uh, Joe Biden is known for making pretty inflammatory off-the-cuff remarks, but he did not do that here. He said, uh, we're not expecting any invasion of Taiwan. Our policy on China hasn't changed. We don't need there to be any new Cold War. Uh, So what what do you make of his remarks after the meeting and their tone? I think that Joe Biden realizes that now when Xi Jinping has been reelected for another five years, he would have to deal with him. And he needs to rebuild ties that the two major superpowers uh, had and to maintain the lines of communications that were cut after Nancy Pelosi's visit of Taiwan in August. Um, and keep in mind that uh, that visit and uh, subsequent visits of other U.S. official delegations took part on the eve of uh, Xi Jinping's re-election in October. And uh, many analysts say that uh, it was aimed to show that Xi Jinping, to, first of all, to the Chinese domestic opposition, that Xi Jinping may not be as strong as he presents himself, that he can't really do anything about the U.S. actions in Taiwan, and the U.S. will continue to do whatever it wants there. And uh, perhaps it would boost an opposition to uh, Xi Jinping back in China. Clearly, uh, that didn't work out, and now the U.S. administration has to work with President Xi, and therefore uh, it's very much interested in rebuilding ties that the two countries had. Yeah, I mean, that seems like the most significant thing to come out of here is that these lines of communication that had been cut will apparently be reopened. Biden said that he had told uh, the U.S. Secretary of State to go to China to follow up on their discussions. Uh, So would you would would you agree that basically the the reopening of these communications is, is probably the most important thing that's come out of this meeting? Practically, yes, but also a very important statement came from Biden when he gave his press conference. He said that he will oppose to any changes in the current Taiwanese status and that he and his administration is absolutely sticking to one China policy. Keep in mind, it's the same Joe Biden who earlier several times in a row said that the U.S. will come and militarily help Taiwan in case of a conflict. Uh, now, clearly, the the rhetoric is very different. Yeah, I mean, that was what I was wondering if uh, when because it was China who shut down these these lines of communication, right? And as a response to that provocative visit by Nancy Pelosi and these those other follow up visits, so I had been wondering. What was China going to get to to open those lines back up? And maybe that statement was was part of it. Um, so do we have a clear idea of what, what the floor is that the this meeting was intended to build for the U.S.-China relationship? You know, on the eve of uh, this meeting, we had a chance to listen to senior um, administration officials who were preparing the meeting. And they were lowering the expectations. They told journalists in advance that, please, don't expect a joint communique or a joint press conference after the meeting. It's not going to happen. And we're not going to solve all our differences. 
but we just want to make sure that this conflict doesn't spill out of spin out of control. That uh, we managed it, and I think that's what happened. But I don't see uh, any changes in the position of China. How the U.S. had to seriously uh, soften its position towards Taiwan. And also on the topic of high-level communication, uh, we had the U.S. CIA director, William Burns, in Ankara this morning to meet with his Russian intelligence counterpart. The U.S. says the conversation was about managing nuclear risks, maintaining stability, and also about Americans who are detained in Russia. And this, of course, follows reports of other ongoing high-level conversations. And so I wonder how significant you think this particular conversation is, and also the fact that we are being told now, like every other day, there's another report about, oh, no, Americans and Russians are talking here. Americans and Russians are talking here. Don't worry. Everything, we're all in communication. Uh, what, what does this tell you? Well, on one hand, it's clearly a positive sign, right? The, parts, uh, the two sides are talking to each other. And William Burns is very much respected in Moscow. He used to be a U.S. ambassador to Russia, and he's well known to the Russian officials. Uh, however, the weird part is that I'm here in Bali, and President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken are here. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is here just as well. But there are no contacts between them, and both sides said there are no plans to meet on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Indonesia. Uh, in uh, G20 summit in Indonesia. That's the weird part. Why is that that the CIA director needs to talk to the head of the Russian intelligence service while the diplomats and top politicians wouldn't talk to each other? Good question. Yeah, that is a good point. And also, like, apparently the reports are that Jake, Jake Sullivan has been talking, Jake Sullivan, a national sec- You know, it's all the security and intelligence guys, not the diplomats, maybe because uh, <laughs> Blinken's done such a bad job. Yeah, we'll have to see. Mindy Gavashelli, thanks so much. Reporting from Bali, that was our Sputnik Bureau chief here in Washington. We're going to take a quick break and come back to talk a little bit more about what Joe Biden got up to in Cambodia and uh, some of the other uh, some of the other news about our relationships in the Asia Pacific. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking a little bit more now about uh, U.S. diplomatic efforts in Bali and in Southeast Asia and across the Asia Pacific. Joining us for that conversation is K.J. No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. Thanks for being here, K.J. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Um, we just spoke to our correspondent in Bali about the meeting between uh, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. I, I wonder what you see in, in that exchange. It's, it seems to be a pretty civil and even-keeled exchange there. Yes, it's been much more civil and even-keeled than in the past. When I look at these kinds of meetings, I look at the readouts 
and I look at the difference for the readouts. The difference between what they say uh, tells us a critical things. That is, i.e., you know, the gap between what they can say to the other party and what they can say to themselves or their own public, and also their respective perceptions on of reality. And on that level, it's an improvement over, you know, for example, the previous uh, year's meetings, where there was such a large gap between what was being reported uh, by both parties that you really had to think that there were irreconcilable differences leading to divorce. That said, I think there are a few things that we can note here. The first thing is that Biden talks about, you know, and it's a mantra with him, responsibly managing uh, competition. But for the Chinese, they see the relationship as a whole. So you don't get to do this a la carte, co- uh, you know, cooperation and competition. The the relationship, you know, you, you don't abuse and send flowers. You know, it, it's right. one the other. And so I think the Chinese are, are still concerned about that. They're very diplomatic about that. They're trying to put a positive spin on it. Uh, but I think the fissures are still there. There's still significant fissures around Taiwan, which uh, President Xi warned uh, Biden that uh, water and fire do not mix. You cannot have it both ways. You are, uh, you know, you are you are talking out of both sides of your mouth when you say you support the one uh, China policy, uh, and at the same time, there is currently a bill going through Congress, which is called. Uh, the Taiwan Policy Act, the full title of which is a bill to ensure the self-determination of Taiwan. You can't hold those two things uh, in the same and same field and 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 state that you are not, you know, actively uh, in, infringing on China's red lines. And so I think that you know, really, it's still we're still uh, in high altitude. Henry Kissinger said that, you know, we were at the foothills of a Cold War, but I've always said that we're at high altitude and the thin air and exposure is still very, very risky. It's also been noted that she and Biden um, arrived at the summit boosted by domestic political developments, right? She was nominated for a historic third term as the Chinese president. Uh, Biden is coming off a better than expected midterm performance. And uh, and Joe Biden said about the midterm results that they confirmed that the U.S. is, quote, ready to play and that we are going to stay fully engaged in the world and we know what we're about. And I have been trying to figure out what he means by that at, at an international summit, right? Because it's a sort of a truism that Americans don't vote on foreign policy. And so all I can come up with is that, you know, he's pointing out that his party got support in the sense that they did not lose as much as support as expected, got support for their Ukraine funding, uh, their Ukraine policy. They got support for their China policy and basically saying we have not been told by the American people to back away from conflict. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but I I don't know what else to say to how else to interpret Joe Biden saying, you know, the midterms tell us that America is ready to play. And I wondered what you thought about that statement. Well, I think the first thing to notice, foreign policy is not something ludic. It's not play. The world is not your sandbox. And uh, yes, it's clear that, you know, you were paid to play and, you know, there were some better than expected results. But you have to remember that the context in which these meetings are happening is the G20. Just a quick historical reminder, the G20 was convened 
when the G7 or the G8 realized that the global capitalist system had collapsed around their ears and they had to go hat in hand to other countries that previously had been considered part of the jungle, you know, China and other third world countries. So it was a real kind of shift in global perception and global power. And once again, this is happening at the G20. And the U.S. thinks that, you know, it's ready to play. But as I said, you know, the world is not a sandbox. Uh, and, and foreign affairs are not a game or, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, a little, you know, amusement. There are things at stake. And I think it speaks to the lack of understanding and the lack of depth of the Biden administration to come out with these kinds of statements. Yeah, it is a it is a pretty um, yeah. childish yeah. way of phrasing things. Absolutely. You know, and for somebody who is supposed to have had so much experience in foreign policy and in diplomacy, I mean, Joe Biden not only was vice president for eight years, but for the better part of two decades, he was the chairman of the or ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He ought to know better than that. And then when we see these reports that Xi Jinping had privately asked Biden to tell Nancy Pelosi not to go to Taiwan, and then Biden says in a public statement to the American people that nobody ever told him that Nancy Pelosi was going to Taiwan, we know that that's just simply not true. And it makes it look like Joe Biden either doesn't understand foreign policy or can't run it. Yeah, or is just making it up because he said, he said, oh, it's not up to me to tell her what to do. (laughs) Nonsense. Um, Let's talk a little bit about... uh, U.S. uh, diplomacy with uh, Korea and Japan, South Korea and Japan, uh, of course, which which uh, always focuses on North Korea. Uh, The three countries, the U.S., South Korea and Japan, issued a joint statement promising to share missile warnings in real time and to launch a three way dialogue on economic stability. And the U.S. and South Korea met to talk security and to talk about this ongoing dispute about elements of the Inflation Reduction Act that support electric vehicle building in the U.S. at the expense of uh, South Korea and France. Those two countries think that these uh, tax credits that the Inflation Reduction Act uh, creates are unfair. I I wonder if you see anything significant coming out of either that trilateral or that bilateral meeting. Well, I think it's uh, significant in that they're announcing it, but this has been a long time building. Since the Obama administration, the U.S. has been trying to press gang South Korea into a shotgun wedding with uh, Japan in order to have this this trilateral military and intelligence sharing alliance, the the Gisonia. And it ran into a lot of opposition under the Moon Moon administration, the previous administration. But now that Yoon is uh, in power, uh, you know, as a U.S. quizzling, he's delivering everything on the U.S.'s uh, Christmas list. Uh, And so, um, you know, so, so this is the current state of affairs. But what's tricky here is that this extreme South Korea Japan alliance is actually very, very politically destabilizing for South Korea internal, internally. For example, recently the South Korean troops saluted the rising sun at a, a military exercise that they did together. And that is like beyond the pale for most Koreans. It would be like, you know, Polish troops saluting the swastika. So it's just unthinkable. But this is the kind of thing that Yoon is pushing along. And um, this is combined with the fact that Yoon does not have a lot of political backing. 
And there's a lot of political instability in Korea right now. The real estate and the bond market is collapsing in serious ways. The semiconductor market looks to be uh, seriously uh, uh, cratered by, you know, U.S. sanctions on China. That's something that Samsung and SK. And then um, this uh, piece around the um, the EVs, you know, this is also a, a real uh, bone of contention because Yoon went to Biden and uh, went up to the, you know, drive-up favor window of the White House and came back with nothing. And so I think the U.S. has to throw South Korea a bone. Uh, otherwise, it will be, Yoon will be in too much trouble. Uh, and therefore, you know, something might come out of it. It's too early to tell. But, you know, the lack of coordination, lack of foresight, lack of strategic thinking, uh, and the lack of understanding the blowback of this administration is quite astounding. So it could be that, you know, South Korea continues, South Korea's industries continue to suffer. A piece in The Diplomat uh, just earlier this weekend said that North and South Korea are at risk of a new crisis. And part of it, you know, part of the analysis was the political situation in South Korea, the political and economic situation in South Korea, you know, combining that with, um, you know, escalating military drills by the U.S. and South Korea on North Korea's border and, of course, you know, escalating responses from North Korea uh, had had ratcheted things up a bit. I wonder if you think that, um, you know, these combining factors, including the the political situation you just described, really does pose the possibility of of a new crisis uh, between those two countries. And, and even what what would that look like, a new crisis between North and South Korea? Well, I mean, North Korea has always been an ongoing crisis. The simple fact is North Korea does not pose a risk to South Korea or, in fact, any other country. Its only risk is that it, you know, it threatens to, you know, to have deterrence to defend itself. But it has the uh, military budget, I think, 50 percent of the NYPD. So it's certainly not a threat, but it is a stalking horse for the U.S. to escalate against China. And since the Yoon administration has come into power, U.S. is essentially engaged in non-stop military drills all over the Pacific. This is part of the, four, the third offset to disperse uh, and expand the, the theater of war. And this just makes it harder for China to use its anti-access area denial systems. But uh, this kind of ongoing uh, crisis, this ongoing threat right now, you know, in the middle of North Korea's harvest season so that the U.S. can beat up on North Korea for not having, you know, for having food insecurity is the kind of usual doublespeak. And uh, I think that what we're looking at is, you know, there are, you know, there are serious uh, problems here. Uh, you know, the serious escalations, the northern limit line, which was rarely breached, has been breached in missile launches. Uh, and this continual escalation against North Korea, combined with the bringing in of Japan into the situation, I think that, you know, the North Koreans uh, will not stand for it. You know, they will not back down. They've, they've been shown that, you know, they don't have much. Uh, but if anything, they have the resolve and the will to fight back. I also wanted to ask what you make of um, 
Joe Biden's statements on China and North Korea, right? He was uh, expected that Biden was going to ask Xi to help with North Korea, to ask or to threaten. Uh, one headline put it, uh, help with North Korea or face more drills. But in his comments after his three-hour meeting with Xi, uh, Joe Biden said he he didn't necessarily think that China could control North Korea. And so I, I wonder how we should interpret that. Uh, to me, that seems positive, right, that he's yeah. not going to try to use the one as a lever uh, to, to punish the other. Um, but I wanted to get your, your take on that. Well, I think it's an acknowledgement of reality. You know, China does not have an interest in controlling North Korea. It does not want to see itself as doing, you know, a kind of an outsourced subcontractor to U.S. foreign policy. The relationship between North Korea and South Korea and the United States could very easily be resolved if the U.S. came to the table with offers of diplomatic normalization and a peace treaty, which North Korea has been suing for for decades. So I think it's a, I think it's a pragmatic realization of uh, the actual reality. And it also has to understand North Korea and China are the only country. Uh, China has uh, an alliance with only one country on the planet, and that is with North Korea. If North Korea is messed with, uh, China, uh, you know, has uh, you know, uh, military, militarily uh, committed to defending uh, North Korea. So I think that is also that also should or has to be part of the equation. Uh, let's also talk about ASEAN because it gets overlooked so often, and I'm a I'm a Southeast Asia partisan. I really like. It. I think it should get more attention. Uh, and and you know what? The Biden administration has been, I guess, trying. Right? Joe Biden addressed the uh, ASEAN summit in Phnom Penh personally on Saturday, but it barely got any coverage. It doesn't ever get any coverage. Southeast Asia never gets any coverage unless it's like, uh, you know, the the Philippines a little bit. Um, but ahead of ahead of the meeting, um, ASEAN ASEAN elevated its relationship with the United States to a comprehensive strategic partnership. This catches the U.S. up with Australia and China, which are already there. Um, and uh, I was wondering, you know, whether you think that Joe Biden's performance at this summit has been something of an uh, improvement because the U.S. has really he's we've struggled to keep smaller nations in the Pacific on on side uh, recently. And the the. Pacific Island Nations Summit in Washington a month or two back was was kind of an embarrassment. So I wonder uh, what you think of the U.S. performance there in Phnom Penh. Well, you know, it's like the U.S. performance in, in many other areas. Uh, you know, we have fairly low um, benchmarks, and then when we surpass that, it looks impressive. But let's look at the actual facts. Uh, you know, there are a few countries that are in the U.S. court, and talking about Thailand, uh, you know, and uh, a few other countries, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, probably neutral, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam are solidly in China's camp. And uh, I think that uh, the ASEAN countries in general, they know uh, that, uh, you know, they know what the score is. You know, China offers them trade, win-win development, economic growth, and the U.S. offers them uh, you know, conflict, block, uh, zero-sum conflict, degrowth. And so I don't think that's a hard choice to make. Essentially, what they're trying to do is they're trying to hedge their bets and, you know, give a little something to the United States because they know that if they don't do that, they get put off on the blacklist and it's very, very, it becomes very, very hard for them. But I think uh, really 
where their hearts and their stomachs lie is in alliance with China. And I think it's a mistake of the United States to overplay or, you know, overestimate its influence on ASEAN right now. I also wanted to talk to you about BRICS. Uh, there's been reporting for the last week or so uh, about new countries wanting to join BRICS, which, of course, currently is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Um, according to these reports, I think Sergey Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, said more than a dozen countries want to join. Uh, they come from South America to North Africa to Central Asia to the Pacific. And if they all joined... They would expand BRICS to include more than 50% of the population, which would be very interesting, except it is not clear, you know, what BRICS does and has the power to do as a block. There's been talk about BRICS creating its own currency reserve and making other potentially very impactful moves, but they haven't happened yet. And so I, I wanted you to talk to us a little bit about this, this potential BRICS expansion. Uh, what what it would mean and what the bloc would have to become to be able to actually use this uh, expansion and it's, uh, you know, it's representing half the global population to actually move world events. Yes. Well, you know, I think the first thing to note is, you know, the BRICS is huge. It's already currently about, you know, uh, uh, 40% of the global population. And this would just, you know, increase its power. Uh, and it has, uh, you know, uh, tremendous, tremendous effect economically. Now, originally it was uh, a, a kind of an investment and uh, economic opportunity. It wasn't really an intergovernmental organization, but it's becoming more and more cohesive. And it's certainly a counterbalance to the G7 block. And you're absolutely right. You know, the kind of different financial structures that are being made the payment systems that are being made, basket reserve currencies, I think these are the things that give it real heft. Uh, currently, the World Bank has noted that uh, the world is de-dollarizing into about 40 different currencies, and this has to do with the U.S. overuse of sanctions and its, you know, financial weaponization uh, of its, you know, control of the global financial system. But uh, people currently are talking about the four R's, or the RRR, or the renminbi, the real, the rand, uh, and the ruble as being the next basket of currencies. If that is the case, then that will fundamentally shift the global uh, system uh, in that U.S. power relies on uh, three pillars. One is military, the second is media, and the third is money. It's is a financialized economy as uh, advanced capitalist societies tend to be. And this is how it extracts a kind of neo-colonial tribute from the rest of the planet. And when that gets undermined and the U.S. no longer has this infinite credit card, which is built on uh, petrodollar recycling and its use as a global reserve currency, then I think, once again, you know, the tectonic shift of multipolarity, those uh, those aspects become much, much clearer and much, much more tangible and concrete. That was Asia-Pacific expert and member of Veterans for Peace, KJ No. KJ, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. We're going to take a quick break here and come back and talk more U.S. politics, including more midterm results and Republican infighting that uh, 
we cannot get enough of. Yes. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The Republican Party today is in a state of flux. It doesn't really know, as a party, in which direction it wants to move. Does it embrace Donald Trump again? That seems increasingly unlikely in the six days following the midterm elections in which Republicans saw serious setbacks, not just in the U.S. Senate and in major governor's races, but in pretty much every secretary of state race all across the country. We don't yet know who the Speaker of the House is going to be. Certainly, certainly uh, McCarthy wants to be the Speaker of the House, but he doesn't have the votes to do it. And in the Senate, Mitch McConnell is going to face his first challenge. In decades. Now, if he wins, he'll be the longest serving political leader in the Senate in the body's history, passing Mike Mansfield. We're going to talk about these questions and more with our next guest, Jim Cavanaugh. Jim is the editor of the Polemicist.net. Jim, it's great to have you back. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this since I saw your name on the schedule, Jim. There's so much to talk about here. The Democrats have recaptured the Senate. Uh, They've won just about every major contested gubernatorial race, with the exception of Nevada. Uh, Or they're leading in those races. They've swept the controversial Secretary of State races, which oversee elections. And six days after the election, the House is still too close to call. Now, NBC has just declared that the Republicans are going to take the House with 219 seats. That's one seat more than they need for a majority. Uh, they could expand on that by as many as eight more seats in the coming days, but that's not enough to govern. Judging by the conservative media like the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, the New York Post, the National Review, Donald Trump is done. Republicans are turning on him in a way that we have never seen before. But with that said, he intends to announce his candidacy for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination tomorrow. And there are rumors that he will also announce a running mate. First of all, what are your thoughts on Trump right now and on the viability of a Trump 2024 candidacy? You know, uh, what I said about Trump at the beginning in 2016, you know, if I'd been Trump's advisor, I said, why are you doing this? You've got a nice grift going. Everybody yeah. likes you. You're Democrats and Republicans. You're paying them off. Your, your sister gets nominated for, gets sent to the federal bench by Clinton. And you're just going to get a lot of completely a tsunami of Flacco about this that's not going to stop, and that's still the case. But he's still in it. I mean, I don't see why he would do this except for his unlimited narcissism. And, you know, I, the fact now that we have Fox Fox, and, and, and uh, the New York Post are the two outlets you mentioned that are the most right. significant here, yep. in the sense of those who are turning on him— uh, the establishment Republicans never liked him and still don't like him. And uh, the problem they have is, you know, uh, uh, you know, he's the crass grifter. And people who grew up in New York knew that all the time. You know, he's the crass, the, the crass, loud, 
grifter. But that's his that was also his charm. He got up on the stage and said, I'm the crass grifter. I'm the loud grifter. They're the phony grifters. <laughs> They're the grifters who are pretending there's something else because I paid them all. <laughs> so that's part of his charm. So it's very difficult for me at, at, you know, at, at any point to understand where Trump is going, especially now, because he was in power for a while. That charm worked when he was not in power to get into power. But he was in power for a while. And now people, what is the result in people's lives that's made their lives better? It's not clear at all. All the things he promised to do, he really couldn't do. I'm going to stop the, the regime change wars, except in Syria. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to attack Iran, but I will assassinate the, 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 the Iran's top general and the top general from Iraq yes. while they're on a peace mission. <laughs> so, you know, he's clearly someone that people can have now been able to see in power is... Uh, contradictory and uh, flaky and is, uh, at the end of the day, pushed around by the very deep state that he attacks correctly, but is also obviously part of. You know, Mary Trump, uh, Donald Trump's niece, who is a clinical psychologist, she's Dr. Mary Trump. She gave an interview to um, uh, on the Mehdi Hassan show yesterday, Sunday, in which she said that psychologically the most horrible thing that you can say about Donald Trump is that he's a loser. He, he responds viscerally to the notion that people think he's a loser. It hurts him more deeply than anything else you can say. But then the New York Times pointed out that he's the first president since Herbert Hoover to lose the House, the Senate, and the White House in four years. And he's the only president to lose the popular vote twice. So if he's so sensitive to being known as a loser, to me, this is the definition of a loser, right? He's lost literally everything. If you're so sensitive to being called a loser, why risk, especially now that you've been essentially trounced in the midterms, why risk losing yet again, and not just losing, but losing in your own party's primaries? Why take the risk? The guy's got more money than he can ever spend. He bought a social media platform. He can yell about anybody or anything that he wants. Why take the risk? Well, that's the gambler's psychology too. You know, you, you know, yeah. you're losing, but you, you can't believe you're going to lose. So, and in his case, he just doesn't believe that he's losing. I mean, yeah. you know, and he's got enough people telling him he's not. He's got, you know, not only sycophants of arrests surrounding him, but he's got millions of people who still are going to follow him uh, because they like. They like the game. They like the the, the attitude that he displays. You know, the tough talking, uh, rough guy. And uh, that's as you say. You know, the worst thing. I think probably one of the major things Donald Trump is afraid of in all these investigations is going to find out he's not a billionaire. You know. Yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, and so uh, the 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 so the. The puzzle, the real deep puzzle is not what Donald Trump, this is a psychology that, as you describe and I describe, you know, the losers keep playing. And uh, he's got enough money that he can waste it all. Uh, and he can play for, because uh, there's not much time left anyway. The, the real deep puzzle is why so many people vote, uh, vote for him and think that he's something that he's not and can't be. And that's part, that's, you know, part of the uh, deep critique of American political culture. Mm -hmm. uh, but he plays that. He's got a game in that. He's got a, he's got a place in that game. And I don't know where where it would go if he ran again. I'd have I really can't tell. He will. It'll disrupt the Republican Party, which is oh, without a doubt. Yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. And you know, I said on uh, on Lee Stranahan's show a year ago, I just didn't think he would run. 
I thought it would be easier for him and better for his legacy if he were to position himself as some sort of a Republican kingmaker, right? But it's just that he can't stay out of the out of the mix. He just can't. Yeah. Anyway. And look, the fact that the Republican Party is more democratic than the Democratic Party, yes. <laughs> that is, they don't have the superdelegates, means he can really get, he might, he has a chance to really disrupt things in a way that, uh, you know, uh, Bernie couldn't in the Democratic Party, because also because Bernie was a tamer character, essentially. Right. But uh, I, I just don't know. It's narcissism on display, and it, he's either going to flame out uh, again or and more dramatically, or... You know, maybe he'll get through, but at any rate, in the process, he's going to disrupt the Republican Party tremendously. I want to get into the House and Senate Republican leadership races a little bit, and I apologize if this might be a little bit too down in the weeds for some people, but it's fascinating to me because it's new. The Senate is slightly an easier call. There's a small uprising against Mitch McConnell. It's led by Josh Hawley, the coward from uh, Missouri, Rick Scott. Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz uh, with Lindsey Graham sort of dancing around on the periphery. They're actively working against McConnell, calling for a delay in the leadership vote, which is scheduled to take place on Wednesday, day after tomorrow, which is well before the December 6th Georgia runoff. And they're looking for somebody to challenge McConnell. Now, interestingly, Rick Scott said this morning that, quote, a lot of people, unquote, have asked him to challenge McConnell. I find that to be ironic because it was Rick Scott that was in charge of the Republican efforts to recapture the Senate, and he fell flat on his face. With that said, McConnell said that he has enough votes to win. How do you think this plays out, and do you think it'll cause a meaningful split among Senate Republicans? Well, there are splits among Senate Republicans, you know, and I don't know what this, how that matches with this or correlates with this. What is the what is the, the the line of principle or difference that these four guys are are, are proposing as opposed to Mc, yeah, McConnell? Good question. Just is he just been there too long? I mean, there are the Republicans who voted against the war funding, you know. So that, that there's those there's a there's a group of libertarians, there's a group of non you know, vaguely not, less interventionist people, etc. But this doesn't seem to be along those lines at all, <laughs> you know, with Cruz and Rubio in it. And so I don't know what the what this, what's at stake in this in terms of policy difference or difference in some kind of political principle. And I, I, I or, or, or is it just that McConnell, they see McConnell, I think probably in some vague way as too soft off against the, the Democrats, but I don't know. So I don't know how it plays out. Uh, and whether it, whether it, I don't, I don't see what, what the meaningfulness of the split is. Uh, so I don't think I can't see here how it's going to, how, however this ends, I I don't see this creating the same kind of disruption for the Republicans. I think they'll get over it, whatever the result of this is, unless there's something going on here. I I don't understand. Agreed. The jockeying for Speaker of the House is way more interesting to me. Kevin McCarthy, who has wanted to be Speaker since he was a child, simply doesn't have the 218 votes to get it. The Republicans have somewhere between 211 and 200 and whatever, 19, according to NBC, confirmed seats uh, to the Democrats, 202. There are a bunch of seats, mostly in California, two in Arizona, one in, uh, in Oregon, still being counted. But that's not the extent of McCarthy's problems. He simply does not have the support of the far right wing Freedom Caucus. 
There were reports late last week that he made a promise to several Freedom Caucus members. They could have an impeachment vote against Joe Biden if they voted for McCarthy for speaker. But not of not all of them signed up for that deal. And even if the Republicans end up with 220 House seats, McCarthy still doesn't have enough votes to win. There are also rumors, and I actually laughed out loud when I read this over the weekend. There are rumors that Freedom Caucus members are going to nominate Donald Trump to be Speaker of the House. Right? What? What? Yeah. You don't have to be a member of Congress to be Speaker of the House. Oh, right. I have seen this go by. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. So whatever happens, the Speaker needs 218 votes. Could you see this going to multiple rounds and then a compromise candidate ending up as Speaker of the House? That hasn't happened in our lifetimes. I could see it, but I doubt it. I think they'll make a deal of some kind at the beginning. You know, uh, and sure, it's just to see this, that the the Freedom Caucus Republicans are holding out for a vote on impeachment, and the squad couldn't hold out for a vote on Medicare for all. Seriously. You know, yeah. uh, they'll vote that vote on, a, on impeachment, you know, because they don't care about that. They might not lose, they might not win the vote, but, you know, if, he, if, if, if that's the the thing that puts it over the top for McCarthy, he'll give him that vote. Yeah. Uh, and they'll hold out for it. I don't know. Again, I, I'm not sure uh, it, that's an issue that they're holding out for impeachment of, uh, of Biden. What are the other issues that are at stake here for them? Uh, and what are the other candidates for, for House Speaker that are going to be put up? I mean, again, Donald Trump coming out of the blue here. Yeah, he's a guy. Yeah. Just, I can't, Not going to happen. I, I really, I'm, no, but I, but I could him. see Jim Jordan. I could see Jim Jordan coming out of the woodwork and, and, and declaring that he wants to be Speaker of the House, but yeah, you're you're right. We we just don't know. But with what's the what's the what's the again what's the angle? What's the what's the principal difference? What's the difference in policy line? They've set down one, which is we got to impeach Biden. Okay, yeah. that, that's one thing. But you know, there's got to be other things or not. Uh, you know, I, uh, the 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 danger of this House business, you know, is the. Uh, first of all, this is the preferred scenario for the ruling class. There's a divided government. That means nothing can get done and nobody can be blamed for it. And it's going to set up another scenario in terms of policy where they're going to go after Social Security and Medicare and, yeah, and that's Biden right. will do the grand bargain that Obama tried to do. But uh, so I don't know what, what what's at stake here. Again, um, uh, in terms of the serious policy and principle division in, their, in the Republican Party, I think they won't let this become something that's going to embarrass the party. And uh, we'll see. Can I so say it, something? It not be- I, I wanted to say something on the topic of like po- policy differences. I, I mentioned this to John earlier. I was listening to uh, an NPR conversation this weekend with an LA Times columnist, Jackie Calms. And they were talking about the, the midterms and the results. And, and they got on this topic of uh, ticket splitters, you know, people who will vote or one uh, one party for most uh, most offices, but then you know, like vote for a Republican for their senator, but a Democrat for their governor, whatever. And uh, and they were saying, you know, yeah, there were some, but but it's uh, the strong implication was the more ticket splitting there is, the better. As if the ideal Congress is sort of a a perfect sprinkling of red and blue, and not that the parties should actually represent alternative visions for the country that are maybe incompatible, you know, and it's just, uh, I, I wanted to ask about this. I, this, we have, 
we worship at this idol of bipartisanship as though that is something to be achieved ahead of actual uh, policy movement, right? Ahead of, uh, you know, representing the will of the American people. And I, I wanted to, it's just like taken for granted that it's good to vote for both Democrats and Republicans, but nobody else. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you guys what, what you make of that and what discussions like that, 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 uh, rest on that assumption due to political discourse. Yeah, look, it's it's American political culture again. We have a kind of, politi- you know, in European politics and left-right politics historically, it's been we know what the parties represent. We know what their 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 propaganda organizations represent. What the what the newspapers that are associated with parties represent. They represent different class interests. They rep- or they represent different particular policy interests, farmers versus, you know. But now in the United States, we have this because really it's a television show. And the, the, these are, it, we have celebrity culture. And we, uh, we, we, we uh, attach ourselves to individuals who, have, who project certain things that are nice or not nice that we identify with or don't identify with. And that's why the party identification doesn't mean as much at all. And the parties, when they're in power, you know, ignore the, their base pretty much and do what yeah. the, 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 the less coherent the political parties are, the more coherent the forces behind them are being. <laughs> they are the producers. The producers of the show are the ruling class. The political candidates do auditions for that, and they get to be on the show. And you get the like, you know, you get two characters, one of them you can like or not like, and the audience gets to vote for the winner and who gets off the aisle and who stays on the aisle. But it's, you know, this is the, this is the character, more and more the characteristic of American culture, American political culture. And uh, it it, it will do nothing to other, the main organs of political education in the country are Fox and MSNBC, you know, so that just reinforces all that. And when you get policies that are important, you know, when it, when there's a war actually going on, Vietnam War, then you start getting things. Yeah. Abortion rights is a good example of this, you know. That's a particular policy that means something. And yes. the Democrat, anybody who uh, 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 embraces abortion rights can win, you know. Any party, and both parties know it. I've said this a hundred times, and that people over the past six, eight, ten years, any party that's the two things, will stop, we'll stop foreign wars and regime change wars, and uh, we'll give you Medicare for all. Anybody who does that will win every election, and both parties know it. But that's not the game they're playing. They don't. Nobody wants really to go into and defend and 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 in, in every way fight for those issues. They want to play around with them as ways to uh, enhance their own opportunistic celebrity status. I want to ask you about uh, what all of this means for legislation. The most important activity. The approval of federal judges takes place in the Senate, but the Biden administration is going to have to still pass a budget, uh, pass an increase in the debt ceiling, pass the National Defense Authorization Act, and there's other legislation in the House. Will the House become a legislative graveyard, do you think? Will they be otherwise busy impeaching Biden and Alejandro Mayorkas and and, uh, Fauci and investigating Hunter Biden's laptop? Or do you think meaningful legislation can eke its way out of the House? Well, I'm afraid the only legislation that would would be bad. I mean, as I say, I think my principal worry here is they're going after Social Security and Medicare. They're going to do it through the budget. They're going to do it through the debt ceiling. And, you know, everybody who promotes the idea of taxpayer money and we have to find the money from taxes to pay for all these things is 
complicit with that and is aiding and abetting that. And we have the history of it. This is what Joe Biden is no politician in the United States that spent more time attacking, so telling you he wants to uh, undermine Social Security and Medicare than Joe Biden over the past 30 years. So you had Obama, who almost did the grand bargain, which he didn't have to do, you know, in order to extend a tax cut that he didn't have to extend. You know, he almost did a brand bargain, which would have undermined Social Security. So Biden is going to be in a position again where he's going to be pressured to do that. He, he who got up and said, Paul Ryan is right. We have to cut Social Security and Medicare. So he's going to be under pressure for, for that from the Republicans in the, in, the, in the House. And he says, oh, I can't do anything unless I go along with them in some way. And he's going to agree. Everybody agrees on oh, the debt ceiling where our, ch- our grandchildren are going to be in slavery because we're, we're bankrupting the country. You know, and that's a line that all the Democrats and Republicans agree on. So that creates the ground for that kind of thing. So I think the possibility for legislation is is terrible. Uh, uh, and of course, in terms of judges, the Democrats have always been much worse at blocking judges than the Republicans. Yeah, than the have Republicans. Been. Going Definitely. back, going back to Biden's promotion of Clarence Thomas. Exactly. You know, exactly. That, He's that, responsible for Clarence Thomas. Getting conservative judges. <laughs> I want to ask you if you can hold on. We have a hard break at the top of the hour, which is in 45 seconds, but I've got another question or two to ask you. So please hold the line. In the meantime, you are listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte, and we are in a conversation with Jim Cavanaugh right now. Jim is the editor of the polemicist.net. Jim, you're old enough to, uh, to remember the, I don't even know if you do remember, but the 1982 midterms, the Democrats' uh, slogan was very simple. It was, save Social Security, vote Democrat. That was it. And they won like 40-something seats in the House of Representatives. Um, You're making an important point here that the Democrats haven't said save Social Security, vote Democrat. They've intimated that they're willing to carry out some sort of negotiations with the Republicans. And then when the Republicans like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee came out and said, we need to cut Social Security, we need to cut Medicare and Medicaid and raise the retirement age yet again, there was silence among the Democrats. What the heck kind of strategy is that? That's their position. I mean, you know, it's been a long time since they've been uh, staunch protectors of Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, this is a disgrace. And, and, but it is based on the taxpayer money premise. And uh, we're running out of money and we're going to find out where to get the money. And if you don't get past that, you're never going to get past this. Uh, but, you know, it's quite clear that Obama tried to do it and almost did it. And uh, the Republicans wouldn't go along <laughs> because there were other conditions they didn't want about taxes, and they were stupid. Uh, and you know, and as I say, Joe Biden has been the one who gets up and says, "Paul Ryan is right. We have to cut yeah. Social Security." Yeah. So that's who you have in the Democratic Party. 
they fought against they they pretended they were for Medicare for all for five six years, and then when it, when Bernie started becoming serious candidate, they spent the entire the, the the main issue of the Democratic Party during the primary season in 2020 was trashing Medicare for all and making people believe it was impossible and ridiculous and stupid yes. and we couldn't afford it et cetera et cetera. So that's good. They they're going to do this, the, the same thing with Social Security. The debt ceiling is going to come up. Oh yes, we have a debt ceiling. It's, you know, we we have to do something about it. We have to cut something. And it's all nonsense. And if you don't understand what's now called modern monetary theory, which is not nothing new about it at all, uh, you know. But this is nonsense. That's been that that is the basis of the thought and the action, the legislative action of Democrats and Republicans, both. And therefore, the groundwork is there, and has been there for a long time. And as you say, the Democrats have. Missed every opportunity to fight against it. You got to fight it. You got to fight for something. That's right. They fight for what they want for money for Ukraine, but they won't fight for this because they don't believe it. They don't want it. And the and the actors behind them who are funding them want to get rid of it. Yeah, that's right. Finally, Jim, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what these earliest days of the 2024 Republican presidential primaries might look like. The battle lines have already been drawn. It's Trump v. DeSantis. Trump's mouth over the weekend seems to be out of control. He's been making enemies unnecessarily. He's been calling people names. He's been China baiting. Um, First of all, have Republicans finally had enough? Secondly, uh, Trump promoted a poll on Friday showing him defeating DeSantis 70 to 30 among Republicans. Nobody has been able to find what that poll is, where it came from. I think he just made it up. But there was a YouGov poll that was released on Saturday that shows 43 for DeSantis and 35 for Trump. What do you make of that? Is this the beginning of the end? Oh, for Trump, you're talking again. For Trump? You know, Nothing could please me more than to see him disappear from the political scene. He's been such a distraction. But, you know, he's also, again, I, I, it's hard for me to say. We know he's going to play the game, and it's going to be very, it's going to be a lot of fun. De-sanctimonious, you know, he's going to, he's going to, we're going to see Trump trying to do his, his, his best at uh, um, ridiculing everybody else and uh, making, uh, having some fun doing it and energizing and, pleasing his uh, uh, his base by doing it. There are going to be probably at least 35% of Republicans who are going to be sympathetic to Trump. Sure. So he's in the game. And, uh, y- you know, uh, 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 so have the Republicans had enough? The Republican base? I don't know. There's, has enough of the Republican base had enough? The Republicans as a party, I think, would like to get, would like Trump to stay out of it. But has enough of the Republican base have enough? Can he stay in? The, can he if he gets in and it looks like he's going to get in? Can he stay in? Will the early results be enough to keep him going? If they are, this will go on. You know, I'm I'm happy to see this happen in the Republican Party, uh, and it will go on for the uh, to the to the convention. But uh, so I don't know. But it but get out the popcorn. It'll be fun. Yeah, I I I agree with you completely. This is going to be absolutely fascinating to watch. That was the voice of Jim Cavanaugh. Jim is the editor of thepolemicist.net. We're going to skip our next break and go uh, straight to our next guest. Um, You know, the 13th Amendment, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Michelle. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which was ratified on December 6th, 1865, outlawed slavery and involuntary servitude in the United States. 
Right? Well, I mean, it was supposed to. It did for the most part. Actually, the amendment says this, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist in the United States, unquote. Those words have led to, what, 165 years of prison labor abuse, chain gangs, and other horrors. But last week, four states, Alabama, Oregon, Tennessee, and Vermont, wiped slavery and involuntary servitude off the books, and they rid their constitutions of racist language that accompanied some of these laws. We'll talk about what that means for prison labor. The state of New York is closing its so-called shock camp. Most Americans don't have any idea that this exists. That leaves one shock camp operating in the state. A shock camp is a correctional institution meant to shock prisoners into sober, law-abiding lives using regimented discipline and physical activity combined with what they call confrontational drug counseling. But studies have shown that the program just simply doesn't work. And in most cases, it's abusive. I would call it torture. And The Intercept is reporting today that the Chicago city government is ignoring new laws designed to allow people on probation or parole to carry out essential tasks. For example, a person in community confinement, that means, you know, house arrest or, or a, a halfway house or wearing an ankle bracelet. They are not allowed to carry out these essential, atta- uh, essential tasks. For example, they can either go to work or they can go to the store to buy food, but they can't do both. The mayor of Chicago and police leaders know that they're breaking the law. The courts have already ruled on this. They just don't care. And they're daring prisoners to sue them. We're going to talk about all of that with Paul Wright. Paul's the managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines and the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center. Great to have you back, Paul. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on the show, John. Well, we certainly have a lot to talk about. Let's begin with the referendums in four states to outlaw slavery and involuntary servitude. There were actually five states, uh, but we'll get that to a minute. Louisiana ended up not passing this legislation after the sponsor said that the, the referendum was so poorly written he withdrew his own support. I looked at each of these referendums wondering if they were just meant to clean up antiquated racist language, but that wasn't the case at all. They really appear to do what they say they do. What was the impetus for these referendums? Why did they happen now? And what do you think that they'll lead to? Well, as I say, someone's been doing this stuff for a long time. Uh, activists have been calling for the abolition of prison slavery and prison servitude, mm-hmm. but at least the nineteen, uh, the, the early nineteen seventies, and and so this has been an issue that it's not a new issue. It's been around for a while, and I think that one of the things that, that's kind of helping lead this, I think, is just a greater awareness around, um, you know, as a result of I think the George the George Floyd murder. And it's doing protests of the Black Lives Matter. I think that people are are just paying attention a little bit more to the fact that, hey, the United States never got around to actually abolishing slavery. Rather, all the United States did was limit it. You know, as you noted, people have been convicted of a crime. And it may not have been that big of a deal in 1865 or 1867 when the United States had maybe 30 or 40,000 prisoners. But today, with two and a half million people locked up on any given day, around the country, it is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, but, but one thing I think is interesting is that 
you know, it's very much been activist and, and a few, you know, and a few courageous um, politicians and legislators that have been pushing this. And, and all this stuff is happening at the ballot by a popular vote. None of this is happening by legislatures. Good point. On their own. And I think this is another case where, you know, as is usual, especially on criminal justice issues, um, voters and the general public is, you know, a lot more sensible and progressive, even radical on these issues than elected legislatures are. And again, this is the thing. Here we are in 2022, and people are courageous enough to say, we don't want slavery, we don't want forced labor, um, which in the rest of the world, I think, is one of the things that helps make us a mockery and uh, why people don't take the United States too seriously. on Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, Paul, I'm especially interested to know if the passage of these referendums will result in prisoners being paid for the work that they do in prison. Most prisoners make a few cents an hour for for real work, in some cases dangerous work. After all, it's the prisoners, as you well know, who make the prisons run. What do you think this will mean for the states that pass these referendums? What changes will happen? I think that the next big thing that we're going to see is going to be um, litigation around this in state courts, where I think the question is going to be, is I think the next question is going to happen, it's going to play out in the state courts with ultimately state Supreme Courts being asked um, to decide the question of whether or not prisoners need to be paid a wage, any wage. Um, Typically, the states that do pay prisoners nominal sums, whether it's, you know, 20 cents a day or... um, or 15 cents an hour or whatever the number is, um, you know, they don't even call it a wage. They call it a gratuity. Oh, my. I didn't know that. So then it's gonna, and the states pay nothing <laughs> <Wow>. in uh, <laughs> Texas, Arkansas, Florida, and Georgia. Those are states that literally pay their prisoners nothing, not even a nominal wage, not even a penny a day, nothing. And <clears throat> so I think <laughs> that those are some of the... Um, you know, I think those are some of the, the obvious challenges that are going to come up is... What are those states going to do? Um, and, I, and, you know, I can kind of see the arguments the state's going to have is, okay, we're not forcing anyone to work. But I think that one of the things that, that maybe this is going to come down to as well is going to be what happens if prisoners refuse to work. Because historically, that's been the, the essence of slavery. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, they, if whoever's got the guns tells you to work and you say no, they're going to do bad things to you. And uh, and as re- and remember, as recently as the nineteen as the mid nineteen seventies, prisons were still being flogged by prison guards in the big yard. Um, the Tucker Telephone is infamous was the nickname uh, given to the um, electric field telephones in the Arkansas State Prison System, where they're stocking prisoners' genitals with them. And this was going on until the mid and late seventies. So this isn't um, you know some antiquated uh, piece of history from you know, uh, centuries ago. I mean, this was happening within living memory. So the next question is going to be if prisoners refuse to work or don't want to work for no pay um, or little pay, um, what can, you know, what inflicts of pain, if any, are the courts going to allow at this point? Because, I mean, that's the essence of slavery. It isn't so much saying you have to pay people to work, but you can't make them work for nothing. And I think that's how that's going to play out. And unfortunately, you know, especially given how, you know, kind of good or bad a lot of our uh, state courts are, yes. I think it's it's far from certain how that question is going to be answered. Yeah, I think that's right. Paul, I assume that 
that this Louisiana referendum just didn't work out the way it was originally intended to work out. As I mentioned a minute ago, the the sponsor of the referendum ended up withdrawing his own support. Uh, I went to the to the state's uh, Secretary of State website and I read the referendum. It to me, it just essentially reiterated the language in the Constitution. Do you have any idea what happened there? Why that fell apart? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I've read a couple of articles about it where they're saying that um, basically that because it was poorly worded, it wasn't going to have much, if any, effect. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, I haven't really talked to folks in Louisiana to get a better on-the-ground sense of, you know, what happened um, with it. But this is also the context. Just remember to put this into kind of both a historical and a modern-day context. Yeah. Um, the biggest prison in Louisiana is at Angola, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, and it's named Angola. The town is named Angola because that's where most of the slaves from Africa that were brought to Louisiana oh. from. And uh, up until the time of the Civil War, when it became a prison, it was literally a slave plantation. Um, so, and, and that's the thing that's interesting, too, is when you look at so much of the the history of uh, prisons in the South, so many of these uh, older prisons that are around from that time period were built on uh, slave on uh, slave plantation. And um, so, you know, to, to say there's a connection between slavery and imprisonment and mass incarceration, it's, you know, it, it, it's, far, it's far from a hyperbolic statement to say that. It's actually kind of a straight historical line. Indeed. And Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that these, that passage of these, uh, these referendums uh, have no effect on federal prisons and the federal system. Is that right? Well, that's an interesting question. I'd say probably not under the so-called supremacy clause of the, uh, of the Constitution, which means that federal laws is, uh, takes priority over state laws. But I think it's but I'd say that there's certainly an argument to be made that if you're a federal prisoner in one of these states that just outlawed um, slavery in their state constitutions, that they should be entitled to the protection of the state constitution um, of the state that they're in. Um, whether or not that would fly in court, I don't know. Probably not. But I, I think it's certainly an argument worth making. And I think it also goes down. It also comes down to showing. I think um, the discrepancies of, you know, of a system where, you know, indeed, uh, people can and do can and may have more rights at the state level than they do at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that, that I think people forget is that the federal constitution is literally just the floor of civil and constitutional rights. That's it's right. Healing. It's not the end all. You start, and when you look at a lot of this stuff, whether it's the minimum wage, whether it's labor laws, now slavery, um, you realize what a low floor that is. And shouldn't as a nation, shouldn't we be aspiring to do more than just have a floor or a bare minimum? That's right. Hey, I want to turn to these so-called shock camps. Uh, tell us what they're supposed to be for. You noted in Prison Legal News magazine that one of the features in the shock camps is that prisoners have no access to televisions, to radios, newspapers, magazines, or any recreational activities. How in the world is that supposed to motivate people to walk away from drugs? Well, this goes back to the 1990s and the mid-90s. These uh, so-called stock camps were all the rage, like a lot of other passing fads in the criminal justice system. And the theory was um, kind of with this infatuation with kind of militarism 
and police state um, and police state bravado, a lot of states decided, and the federal government decided that uh, basically recreating a military boot camp type thing was somehow going to quote you know straighten out um, you know mentally ill drug addicts into abandoning their drug addictions and their criminal behavior. And what's interesting is that I think this is also kind of the cautionary tale about how a lot of stuff that was initially sold as somehow reducing prison populations only served to increase it. Because once legislators were done with it, the people that were going to these so-called boot camps or stock camps, it wasn't they weren't sending people there that would have otherwise gone to prison. Rather, they're sending people there that would have gotten probation or suspended sentences. And then when they predictably fail, they set very high standards to get in. And then these places had failure rates of, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent, which, which they then went to prison to serve. And I think, and I think it's, it's kind of, um, I, I think for anyone remotely familiar with this type of issue, it's kind of nonsensical to think that if someone has a drug problem or a mental illness, that sending them to a paramilitary-style boot camp to be degraded, humiliated, and screamed at and made to do a lot of push-ups probably isn't going to fix their mental illness. It's probably not going to fix their drug addiction. And that's the very reason why the armed forces don't accept people with mental illness or drug addiction. Mm -hmm. If they did, um, you know, I think the armed forces would be full of former <laughs> former uh, drug addicts and the former mentally ill, yep. but, but they're not. And so pretty much after enacting these thought camps and these boot camps with a lot of fanfare around the country in the 1990s, pretty much within around 10 or 15 years, most states had quietly abandoned them as being both a waste of um, time and resources and money. And basically, they never, they never lived up to the promises that were made by politicians. And if anything, they just bloated the prison population even more with people that should have never even been in prison in the first place. Well, that actually leads to my next question. There was a very powerful story in this uh, Prison Legal News article. It said that one shock camp prisoner recalled an incident where a dorm full of women were forced to walk in circles for 10 hours, holding their mattresses on their heads. Their scalps were rubbed raw until they bled. The shock camp was also known for a series of prisoner deaths, sexual assaults by guards, and physical abuse. How is this not torture? Why did it take so long to close this facility? And why is there still one shock camp open and operating in New York? Well, I think as far as, far as the, the full premise behind it, I, I think that's what a lot of people's premise of what these so-called boot camps are or were were supposed to be is, is somehow this whole notion of mindless, um, you know, mindless discipline. Um, and, you know, discipline is basically, I think, in the American parlance, is just basically some idiot in a uniform shouting at people, screaming at them, and telling them to do stuff that makes no sense. You know, that, that's what's viewed as discipline. And, and I think that, that what people kind of overlook, and I think is especially common with people that have never been in the military, is that actually boot camp isn't just about, um, you know, being screamed at or, or made to do stupid things, right. but rather, you know, there's actually, you're actually learning a lot. And that, that's everything from, and I, and I say this having been in the, being a military veteran myself, is that you're learning things like how to march, how to wear a uniform. Uh, you know, there's actually a lot of classroom instruction and there's actual physical exercise. You know, you're actually getting into good physical state. And this, 
and, and you know, and no military, no branch of the U.S. military is going to have recruits tromping around the barracks for ten hours with um, with a mattress on their head. And the reality is, because in the military, they've actually got things to do. They've actually got a time schedule where you're meant to learn things and progress. And I think that's the exact opposite of the definition of, of incarceration in America. Literally, all you're doing is killing time. Yeah, it's punishment. Sentence. Yes. And, and it's not like anything these people do is going gonna, is gonna to get them out of prison sooner. And from a prison guard perspective or whatever, or an administrator perspective, it doesn't matter to them if they're watching TV, if they're tromping around the barracks with a mattress on their head. And I think in a lot of respects, it, it kind of illustrates, I think, the, the absurdity of incarceration, uh, of expecting anything positive to come out of caging people. Yes, I would agree with that. I also wanted to talk to you about this police and political corruption in Chicago. A criminal justice reform law allowed prisoners on probation or parole two personal days a week to do things like to go to the grocery store or to the doctor. Um, the Intercept has a story about a prisoner who, um, he was out of toilet paper and he had to go to the store to buy some toilet paper. So he called the halfway house to say, you have to say your name, your prisoner number, why you want to leave the house, the time that you're leaving the house and the time you expect to come back. He said he just needed to go to the grocery store to buy some toilet paper. They said nothing doing that his two personal days a week are used as work days. It, it, the work days count as your personal days. This is clearly illegal. This is clearly a violation of this state law. But until somebody sues and a court rules, prisoners are out of luck. Now, a prisoner can't sue unless he's violated for going out and buying toilet paper and sent back to prison. <coughs> Where do you think this goes next? Well, I think I think the reality is it winds up uh, it winds up in front of uh, you know if the if the prisoner winds up getting his um, his halfway house status revoked and that presumably they get a hearing and then if they lose there then as you know they they can wind up going to um, you know filing suit over it but but I think this is also kind of like the very nature of mass incarceration is that you know you're talking about conveyor belt justice I mean. It, and I don't think anyone in government, either the judges, the prosecutors, the prison officials, any of them really care. I mean, it's just a numbers game for them. Is if you've got two thousand people in a halfway house or on home confinement, and you put, and this is one of the things that really drives prison admissions, is in any given state, anywhere between forty and sixty percent of prison admissions aren't made up for people being convicted of crimes. Um, and felonies and being sent to prison, it's it's convicted. It's people that are violating in terms of probation. People that are having their parole revoked. They haven't committed a new crime. They're these, they're being locked up for so-called technical violation. Uh, the technical violation being the guy had to stop and get toilet paper. Um, they changed jobs without telling their parole officer. They left the county without permission. They got married without permission. Right. These are the things that are filling our nation's prisons, and in some respects, I think it's a very cynical ploy by a lot of prosecutors, because they get people to waive their their right to a jury trial, um, to plead guilty to offenses, and they say, hey, we'll give you probation. Yep. And they know full well that they're giving them probation, and but they're giving them sentences, or they're giving them conditions of probation that, for the most part, no American 
or very few Americans can actually comply with. And, and in some states, it's, it's actually, um, I, I find it amazing because they give people extremely long probation sentences, like 10, 15, 20 years of probation. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, then people wind up doing uh, probation, they wind up doing more, ter- more time on probation violations over a lengthy time period than if they'd just been sentenced to prison and made to do the time at, once, in one, at one time. And I think it's a very cynical ploy that's been very effective at filling our nation's prisons with fairly minor offenders. Agreed. Finally, Paul, you said in the most recent issue of Criminal Legal News magazine that the Human Rights Defense Center has had mixed success in lawsuits challenging prisons and jails that block delivery of the magazines. Some prisons and jails don't allow any incoming mail at all, like at Rikers Island. Some allow only postcards. Some ban only prison legal news and criminal legal news magazines. Tell us about those bans, about the suits, and what HRDC is doing in the courts. Well, for 32 years, we faced a lot of hostility from prison and jail officials where they've attempted to censor um, our books and magazines. And for the most part, we've won just about all the cases we have filed. We've got probably around a 98% win rate, which is pretty huge. Um, then on the other hand, for example, Florida, Florida has successfully kept prison legal news and criminal legal news out of its prison system um, continuously since 2009. And before that, they started banning us in 2003. We filed suit, and they relented literally on the day of trial. So, um, And then after they told the court that uh, the case was moot, um, the court dismissed the case, saying it was moot because they said they wouldn't do it again. And literally four years after that, they started doing it again in 2009. Uh, in September, we had a trial, our third trial, uh, challenging the Florida Department of Corrections on this. And right now we're waiting for a verdict or decision from, from the judge on that. In other parts of the country, um, in October, in fact, we had a, we had another trial in front of a judge in Fayetteville, Arkansas where we're challenging a ban by the Baxter County Jail in Arkansas. And, and when you talk about, like, prisons in other countries and, and things like that, um, this is a level, prisoners in the Baxter County Jail are subject to a level of isolation that I, I think is literally comparable to, say, North Korea. And this is in the context that prisoners in the Baxter County Jail are not allowed to watch television. They are not allowed to have access to newspapers. They're not allowed to have access to books or magazines and they also can't. Um, they also can't receive visits from friends or family members. Uh, their only contact with the outside world is whatever fits on a postcard. And um, unfortunately, the judge, the first go around, said that was perfectly okay. The law library at this jail literally consists of a milk carton with around six old law books that are ten or fifteen years old that have had a bunch of pages ripped out of them. That's the law library. That's the law library at the facility. And so far, um, everyone thinks this is okay. And the Human Rights Defense Center, we've gone to Arkansas, um, and we have filed, we filed a suit over it, and we went to trial, I think it was in 2019. We lost. We appealed. Uh, we won for the court to, for the, it went back to the lower court to make findings whether there's any alternatives. For us to um, get our message um, and information to prisoners in the jail, and now we're waiting for a decision. Um, and now we're waiting for a decision on that. Um, 
so, you know, but this, these are just two examples of uh, some of the stuff we're doing uh, to try and make sure the prisoners can get information. And it's, it's really a mixed bag around the country. We've, um, you know, we've had a great deal of success um, challenging things, but, but I think that one of the things when it comes to like the censorship of the First Amendment and free speech in prison is every time prison officials move to restrict free speech, they move to restrict information, they try to stop our publications, we have to win every single one of these cases. And we're not really moving the ball forward. We're just kind of restore the status quo. Yeah. Where we have access where prisoners have access to the information because every time we lose or what, if we do lose these cases, um, literally it's a, it's a step backwards. And, and I think it's just interesting when you start talking about the concept of free speech and things like that. And you see how much free speech has been eroded across the board, across American society, both in prison and out. And specifically, and you know, I'm specifically dealing in the prison and jail context every day. And I just see how little free speech there is now, even compared to say 30 years ago when I first started doing this work. And, and it's been kind of a steadily erosion and the Human Rights Defense Center, we're, we, we are the only publisher consistently fighting and challenging uh, the censorship practices around the country. And, and I think it also goes to show, though, is that your rights as an American really depend a lot on where you live. And if you're a prisoner, where you're locked up at. Um, we've pretty much cleaned up a, virtually all these, uh, these limitations, these bans on books and magazines, um, these uh, postcard policies, we've pretty much cleaned all that stuff up at the Ninth Circuit, uh, which is the westernmost state of California, Washington, Oregon. Uh, but other places, especially the states of the former Confederacy, they're quite the cesspools of censorship and um, basically uh, restricting what people can and can't read. Mm-hmm. Well, we wish you luck there. You've got a, you've got a big fight on your hands. That was the voice of Paul Wright. Paul is the managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines, and he's the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll come back after a short break. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I am here with John Kiriakou, and we're going to take a look at what is happening across the pond. We're going to get into a migrant story that didn't get much attention over here, but I think probably should have. We are going to check in with the rail strike over there, and we're also going to uh, get an update on the, the case of Julian Assange and what kind of timeline we may be looking at for his extradition. Joining us for all of this is Mohammed Elmazi. He's a UK-based freelance journalist. Uh, Mohammed, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. There was a, a st- story earlier this month that didn't get a lot of attention here. It's this tale of a girl being held in a migrant center in Kent, throwing a note in a bottle over the fence to, I think, a photojournalist. The note said, uh, we need help. There are children in here. There are sick and disabled people. Uh, the food is bad. There's no health care. We're treated like we're in prison, et cetera. And 
You know, there there has been actually a lot of focus on migration across the Mediterranean recently, especially with this standoff at an Italian port between uh, Italian authorities and a, and a rescue ship. But we don't hear a lot about what's happening in Britain. So I, I wonder if you could talk to us about this migrant center and who ends up there. Sure. So uh, all manner of people could end up there. But there's people who have claims like asylum and refugee claims that are supposed to be processed uh, end up there. I mean, the thing is, people are only supposed to be there for a day and and end up getting kicked there, kept there for weeks. Uh, so that's actually a, a violation of uh, the law, basically. Um, also, that, that figure, there shouldn't be any more than, I think, is it 1,600 people there at any one time? Because it's a processing center. Uh, and I think there's 4,000, closer to 4,000 people being there. So, yeah, it's a pretty outrageous situation. And, and um, it, it's difficult to see this as, as accidental or incidental, right? Because there have been long-term issues with uh, 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 centers where people are being processed or where people are being kept uh, while their applications are being determined. And quite often what's used or, or well, I don't know about quite often, but a number of cases uh, including here and including uh, elsewhere at Napier Barracks, they're using uh, former military barracks. So um, uh, the journalist uh, Shadia Edwards-Dashti did an investigation, something similar where someone handed a note through a, a fence, right, where once again, these people aren't being detained as criminals, right? They're right. not accused of committing any crime. They're sitting they're there while the Home Office is supposed to be considering their claim, but it was bad enough that people were self-harming, there were protests, etc. Uh, that's at Napier Barracks. And, um, you know, you had these comments from uh, then Home Secretary Priti Patel, if it was good enough for our troops, then it's uh, good enough for these migrants, wow. right? Missing, of course, the point that, uh, A, there were like three times as many people or four times as many people as, as migrants, refugees, asylum seekers than there were soldiers, Right. So it, they were well beyond capacity. B, the place had been closed down, it turns out, because it was deemed unfit for the soldiers. Oh, no. And C, right. So those are soldiers who were there, who were paid. Right. Who were, you know, they're not being detained. They're not fleeing a violence in their home countries and then making it to a third country like Britain. Right. They were they were just stations there. And um, so that's the kind of attitude that we have right now from the government and uh, every now and then one of these stories manages to break through about overcrowding at centers were were like in this case the one that you mentioned at manston uh you know holding families and 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 you know including children and, and individuals for four weeks where they're not supposed to be staying there for longer than 24 hours right That's so just yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, and I wanted to talk about something that uh, sort of serendipitously, uh, I guess the UK is attempting as a solution to this problem, which is this new deal the UK and France have signed uh, that will just basically step up policing of the English Channel, uh, particularly on the French side. It's going to increase payments to France so that France can increase patrols on its northern beaches. Uh, the two countries are going to collaborate more closely on policing. They're going to embed uh, officers in the other's control rooms. Uh, they're going to invest in drones, dogs, night vision technology, surveillance cameras, and discussing the the deal this morning, the UK foreign minister said, 
we have got to get a grip on the international trade in human misery. And I just, you know, just throwing more money to have drones patrolling northern beaches and and sniffer dogs looking for smugglers is not the same to me as addressing any of the drivers of uh, migration and that source of human misery that the foreign secretary wants to get a hold of. And so I I wonder what you make of this deal and what it's going to do to stop migration. Sure. And also bear in mind that these dogs, I mean, the the dogs are, are according to the UK government's joint statement with the French government, the, the detection dogs are to identify migrants or identify refugees, yeah. asylum seekers and, and economic migrants, right? Not to identify smugglers. Yeah. Right? So oh, I'm not quite sure how these how these operations will assist in in uh, uh, combating human misery. This is just more about pushing people back. Right. Yeah. So over the last few years, there has been an increase in people making it over the channel. If we're to take uh, the, the the statistics, official statistics at their face value, so uh, uh, supposedly it's reached uh, forty thousand uh, this year so far who've crossed the English Channel, um, and uh, that's quite a uh, an increase from uh, under thirty thousand in twenty twenty one, which finished so in total in twenty twenty one and below 10,000 in 2020. And uh, there has been apparently quite an increase in people coming from Albania, the largest number, uh, for various reasons, including economic reasons, supposedly gangs as well, trafficking gangs. Um, but there's apparently uh, apparently a Gallup poll a few years ago said, uh, is it a few years ago, I think, uh, or a couple of years ago, said that uh, 60% of people would like to leave Albania. They are currently being considered for EU membership and they can travel to eu countries without uh, uh like relatively freely for short periods of time not not for work so that may make it easier apparently for and apparently albanian like uh, uh or human trafficking gangs or trafficking gangs in france are also exploiting various avenues so that sounds like something that they need to deal with but bear, also bear in mind that it's not they're not just people coming from albania they're the next highest According to uh, stats from the Home Office, the next highest groups are people coming from Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Eritrea, Sudan, Egypt, Vietnam, Kuwait. Uh, and so if you think about a number of those countries, uh, the UK the UK and the US's role and other EU countries' role in sort of destabilizing, like destabilizing the countries or the regions or engaging in activity which, which exacerbates... Uh, uh, life there. Iran, unsurprisingly, I mean, they've been crushing sanctions for quite a few years, you know, uh, up to and including the Obama administration, then a bit of a break when they did the nuclear deal, then then when, then when Trump violated that deal and completely just uh, trashed it, the sanctions came back. And, you know, the, the sanctions kill. They crush economic uh, uh, opportunity, etc. Iraq, I mean, what, the illegal invasion of Iraq, which was preceded by 10 years of crushing sanctions that killed hundreds of thousands of people, and then just the never-ending spillover from that. Afghanistan, say thing, the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan for 20 years. So none of, the, none of what you've heard really addresses uh, uh, country of origin issues, right? If you read, if I, I read through the UK-France statement about this deal that you've mentioned— uh, which is uh, tens of millions of pounds deal of the UK paying France, 
the 72.2 million euros for 2022 to 2023. Um, there's literally nothing there about about uh, dealing with uh, what is causing people to leave, right? And 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 perhaps UK policy in that respect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's just you're just seeing more. Uh, militarization of borders, more sort of criminalization of of uh, the the process of migration, more poor treatment of of people who are seeking asylum, and nothing from what I can see to uh, address what is pushing people from their countries. It's just it's a really ugly pattern, uh, and not just of borders. To be f- sorry, sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Not just at borders. If you uh, uh, people should uh, perhaps you should actually invite somebody from State Watch to see if they'll come along as a NGO, which has long monitored uh, the sort of the EU. Uh, and even though we've left the EU, they still follow those policies. But specifically, as it relates to not just EU, the UK as well, it's a UK-based organisation that that addresses uh, civil liberties and human rights, but from the perspective of matters of like state surveillance and data protection. And they've been putting out multiple reports over the last year of just the increased uh, securitization of not just the border regions, but within the countries themselves, within the EU, increased application of, uh, you know, more police powers, less individual rights, uh, a greater expansion of biometric uh, um, identification and biometric ID powers, not just for the border force, but increasingly for police for domestic uh, application as well uh, so yeah so what we see is is even the the language in the statement which was published on the 14th of november which is today the policy paper the uk france joint joint statement they use words like uh, threat right and when they're talking about threats they're not talking about the threat of gangs right so it's understanding the threat of this migrant increase Right, which is an interesting one, especially given the rather high percentage of Albanians and others who, when they finally have their claims processed, which can be another matter, um, they are they, they they tend to be successful in in many cases. So maybe that's the greatest threat is that there are people with legitimate claims. Right, exactly. That, that's how this government looks at it as that as a threat. Sorry. Um, I also want to talk about one of one of the other responses, which is uh, these flights to Rwanda, uh, which is something that uh, I guess two prime ministers back. This was the idea that they came up with. Uh, this is the plan to deport people seeking asylum to Rwanda. That plan got challenged in court before I think any I think before any flights could actually be. Um, undertaken. And the airlines that were supposed to take part dropped out of the deal, including this uh, Spanish charter uh, airline that dropped out, I think, a couple weeks ago. That was the last resort option. And yet now I see that uh, Rwanda Air has just launched its first direct flights to Heathrow. And so I wonder if you think that might mean that this deportation plan is going to be revived. Oh, yeah, definitely. They're not giving up on the Rwanda plan. Uh, in fact, there have been statements from politicians saying that they're quite supportive of it, including the current Home Secretary. So um, uh, whether it will be successful or not, we know that they're not giving up on it because uh, uh, it, 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 I think they think it has a strong sort of deterrence factor, right? Like if, if that wherever people come from, we'll just have you know some detention center in Rwanda where we can dump them. That that will be enough. 
that if that gets advertised enough, that that will deter people. But we also have to remember what people are, because they won't be able to send Albanians to Rwanda. So, so what kind of people, what country of origin people are you planning on sending to Rwanda? Presumably people who come from the African continent, but does that include North Africa, like right. Libya, or, or does that include uh, Sudan? Does that include... And so um, there... I know they want to be able to continue with it. Uh, uh, they've said as much. And I think also they want to be able to show to their base or to aspects of their base, especially when it comes out in the press, the, the complaints about increased illegal immigration, that they're doing everything they can. Whether they'll be able to is another matter that remains to be seen. I also wanted to ask you for an update on the case of Julian Assange. Uh, it looks like 10 days ago, uh, it was reported at least 10 days ago that a judge with Spain's National High Court had filed a request for judicial assistance uh, from the United States House Intelligence Committee. He's asking the committee to provide information about a Spanish firm that is accused of surveilling Assange while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy and uh, perhaps sending that information on to his, uh, the CIA. This case has been underway for a while now. It also does not get a ton of attention. You know, the case of Assange sort of rises to the top of, um, you know, scrutiny in some areas, at least, of, of the media and then disappears for long periods of time. And so I wonder if you could update us on uh, on Assange's condition, what you know of it, uh, what the timeline might be for his extradition now, and what kind of progress is being made in this case in Spanish court about this uh, security firm that's accused of spying on him and sending uh, information to the U.S.? Well, in terms of the Spanish court, uh, uh, I've got nothing more than what it is that you've mentioned, which is this, the fact that uh, they've, they've asked uh, the U.S. House Intelligence Committee for additional information on, on uh, UC Global and its collaboration with the Central Intelligence Agency. Apparently, Adam Schiff uh, uh, called for more uh, information because he's, he's a key figure, is he not? Yep. As he, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Um, in 2021, he called for uh, like uh, demanded explanations from the main uh, U.S. intelligence uh, agencies about what was going on in their espionage uh, and surveillance against Julian Assange and others who visited him at the embassy. This is only when the Yahoo report came out. I don't know how strongly Adam Schiff would follow that, though, given that uh, he does seem to be a safe pair of hands as far as the intelligence community are concerned. Um, in terms of Julian's condition, I've heard varying things from uh, he's hanging in there to uh, things are quite tough. You know, he's suffered a stroke, uh, a mini stroke in the past. He's also had other conditions as well that we've heard about. Uh, I think he's doing his best to stay uh, uh, to stand firm, but it, it it apparently is getting quite difficult. Like his condition is is gradually worsening. Um, you know, because you have a combination of factors. You have the personal motivation, which you know he 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 is in contact with his wife Stella Assange, but then you also have the physical components and the physical toll that this is all taking on him. Uh, you may or may not be aware that Ithaca, a documentary with a very insider sort of look. Yes. Uh, has been uh, uh, shown on Sunday, so in the in New York. Sorry, premiered in New York City. I think uh, New York City. I think I, so. I think it was yeah. New York. Yeah. Oh, there you are, John. I, Hi. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure <laughs> that. And um, but over here, 
okay, so we've got the appeal. We're still waiting for the next hearing to be scheduled. Uh, as your listeners may recall, there is a number of defense appeals, uh, not defense technically, but, you know, Julian Sanchez side, let's call it the defense side, the, the Julian side. They're filing appeals on matters that they had initially lost on uh, from the, in, uh, at the very beginning. When the judge first made her decision, she refused to extradite him. The uh, the magistrate, the uh, district judge, Vanessa Baratzer, who was uh, oversaw the case at Westminster Magistrates Court, she refused to extradite Julian, but purely on health grounds. She, she rejected all their other arguments. So those arguments that she rejected are now being appealed to the high court. And so we're still waiting now to hear if the high court will grant uh, an appeal date for some, most, or all of those uh, appeal grounds, such as that extraditing Julian would violate uh, the right to free speech and free press, that uh, this prosecution is politically motivated, that it's a politically motivated uh, 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 sorry that the tri- that the charges as well are political offenses, espionage offenses, and therefore the the UK-US extradition treaty prohibits extradition in cases of political offenses. So uh, there are a number of various grounds that he wouldn't get a fair trial, that there's been a, a clear abuse of process on the parts of the United States. So those are the kinds of grounds that they're appealing. They're waiting to hear if the High Court will. Okay. The High Court says no. They still potentially appeal to the Supreme Court the UK Supreme Court, and then potentially to the European Court of Human Rights. I also wanted to ask just briefly uh, how things are in the UK. I know that the, there are rail strikes ongoing. I wanted to ask if they have, uh, you know, achieved any movement in what they're asking for. Uh, periodically, you see these tweets about British celebrities offering to pay the energy bills of different individuals uh, and small uh, small businesses. So what's going on with the rail strike? And what what's going on in sort of the UK society right now? Uh, there is a very serious cost of living crisis, uh, crush like very serious inflation. Um, rent is just getting ever increasingly prohibitively expensive. Uh, the rail strikes are also occurring at a time that you also have postal strikes happening because I know people may be aware, but ten years ago, the coalition government, the the liberal and con- uh, conservative coalition government. Uh, privatized the postal service, which had, I don't know if it was the oldest postal service in the world, I can't recall, Royal Mail, which is still called Royal Mail. And uh, while they were on a decent, not a great, but a decent deal uh, that they were able to secure because of threats of strikes then, were, um, now they want to rip up the deal. They basically want to Uberize it, right, to, 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 to make it as precarious as possible. So the postal office used to be a very good, secure job, especially for like working class people. Same thing for rail workers and people who work within the RMT, which is the lead um, union uh, in, in terms of the rail strikes. That's the Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers Union. And so... You have all manner of strikes on the tube, on the o- overground trains. You have postal service strikes. I mean, there's all kinds of posts that I know I haven't received, which is quite frustrating. Uh-huh. Like, I support the strikers at the same time. Uh, there are government documents that I've applied for that have just vanished in the ether. Um, you have apparently some of the highest uh, uh, strikes uh, in the last... I want to do a bit of research in this. But this is the first time this year or last year is the first time that actually strikes 
uh, are not among the lowest since the, the 80s. So we have, this might be some of the greatest number of strikes recorded since, like in, in 20 years or, or greater even. So you have rising um, food costs, rising petro- petrol costs. Energy in particular is a very serious issue, right? Uh, so, you know, I don't even know how it is they expect, they, they, they must be seriously disconnected from reality because I don't know how they expect people to be able to pay their energy bills. Okay, at the last minute, the previous government of Liz Truss, which is ousted, um, finally agreed to it, like a subsidy. But that's still just giving tens of billions of dollars uh, uh, to the energy company. So they could have just said to the energy company, um, fit, you know, drop your rates or freeze your rates or we'll just nationalize you. Right. But they didn't. That's what they should have done, frankly. Uh, instead, while these energy companies are, are posting record profits, uh, while at the same time claiming that this is all because of the war in Ukraine, which makes no sense, right? Because you can't claim record profits on the one hand and then say that all this increase in energy costs are as a result of external factors because then you wouldn't be posting any profits. You'd merely just be passing down the cost to your your customers. But obviously what there's increased costs and then they're just massively increasing on top of that profit right there which is not unusual in times of inflation for businesses to um profiteer to say like well we'll just claim that we have no control over it yeah they're doing so, it across uh, the board over here as well it's it's outrageous yeah yep. it's a very serious very serious situation and they do seem to be a bit disconnected from reality i don't know how much longer because the new the new government have said well, we don't know if we'll even keep the subsidy so you can you can imagine that some people will be looking at like, you know, a few thousand pounds just in paying like heating bill. Yeah. And when you look at how much people earn there, you know, that, that that's that's well beyond what people have. You talk about people going into debt just to pay their energy bill, let alone the fact that so many of us are paying 50, 60 percent of our salaries or more on paying the rent. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's not just in London. Right. That's no. that's a that's a problem all over. It's a recipe for disaster. We could, it's why we keep checking in because we keep forgetting just how bad it is. And then you see some story like the headline about the British Ukrainian couple who moved back to Ukraine rather yeah. than try and rent a place in in the in UK. Yep. Uh, Mohammed, we're we're at the end of the show here. Uh, I know you contribute to lots of different outlets. I wanted to ask you uh, what you're working on now and where our listeners should go to find more of your work. Uh, I'm looking at a, I'm working on a couple different pieces. Uh, uh, one, uh, I suppose people can look to uh, the dissenter. Hopefully, we'll have uh, an update on the Amnesty International Julian Assange front there. And uh, I suppose I'll just let you guys know in terms of uh, in terms of other pieces, electronic intifada, that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Well, great to talk to you again, uh, Mohammed. Take care. Thank you very much. You too. Bye bye. We're almost at the end here. We got a few headlines, but yeah. did you see? Uh, today was the start of a, a, a strike by yes. forty-eight thousand academics yes. 48, in the 000. University of California system, which is something I think we will talk about in a little more detail yeah. tomorrow. And Jeff Bezos announced a gigantic layoff at Amazon. Yeah, um, more than ten thousand people—the biggest one ever in Amazon's history. Yeah, he's also been warning Americans that a recession is coming yep. and uh, they better batten down the hatches and saying he's going to give most of his money to charity. Yeah, I think his his ex-wife shamed him into it because she's already 
actively been giving away her money. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see. We'll see how much that most is anyway. <laughs> I wanted so, to add to real quickly, if I could. Please. Do you remember Senator Scott Brown? He was the moderately yes. liberal Republican uh-huh. from Massachusetts who took the yep. uh, uh, Ted Kennedy Senate seat. He's just kind of vanished from politics. He briefly moved to New Hampshire to run for Senate there, and then he got killed. So he accepted a job today. You know what he's doing? What? He is the girls' basketball coach at Amesbury High School in Amesbury, Massachusetts. I bet he's going to have so much more fun. I say God bless. <laughs> Good for him. We got to get out of here. Thanks to everybody who joined us and makes the show possible. And on behalf of John Kiriaki and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>